65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon and welcome to Spanning the State, the show where we highlight stories from across the state and break down headlines that affect the whole state. We are already halfway through our first week, over halfway, and I am very happy to welcome my next guest co-host. He's going to be here every Thursday with me, the founder of the Recombobulation Area, Dan Schaefer. How are you doing? Good afternoon, Kristen. Happy to be joining you on the show here. So you're look not, at us. Uh, huh? Look at us. Look at us. Who would have thought? No stranger to WTMJ. You've hosted multiple times for WTMJ nights, right? That's right. I've been a regular guest host on WTMJ nights. I'm also on with uh, Steve Scafidi uh, every Tuesday at 930, uh, breaking down all sorts of different political stories there. So uh, different for me to be here in the afternoon. I guess I've checked off the morning, the nights. Now I'm here in the afternoon with you. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm excited because I think today is a day where you and I... uh, in the last since since I've known you, basically, we've talked a lot about maps and redistricting in the attempt to try to make it more interesting for folks. Uh, at least I have. I don't know if you've tried to make it more interesting for folks, but uh, but we had huge news. So for politicos, this has been a very big week for people who've been following redistricting for the decade plus that it's been a major story. Uh, so we're going to dive into it a little bit more, but. Potentially, we're not going to have that much more to talk about besides congressional maps that are kind of next. But for the most part, this could be close to having a finale. It it sure seems like the end of one chapter and the beginning of another in Wisconsin's history with with these new legislative maps. You know, for the past 12 plus years, Wisconsin has been under this pretty extreme partisan gerrymander. And now that, you know, after voters uh, made their voices clear last year in the state Supreme Court election. Uh, the changes coming with the checks and balances uh, through that. And now we, Governor Evers, signing those new maps into law on Monday. Uh, you know, we're going to be looking ahead at a brand new, very different landscape for all 99 assembly seats, uh, half of the state Senate seats that will be on the ballot this year. So it is a very interesting moment for Wisconsin. You know, as Governor Evers said uh, when he was signing the maps, it's a new day in Wisconsin, folks. So what does that actually mean, though? We're going to get to that in the second hour at 2.15, kind of breaking it down of what does that mean for you? If you're someone who hasn't followed this story super closely, what changes are going to happen? What incumbents are going to potentially run against each other? We're going to do that in the second hour. Uh, at 2.35, this, uh, no, 1.35, this, this, we're going to talk about UW-Madison. And now that they are going to have automatic admission for the top 5% of every Wisconsin high school. How big of a change is that from what they already do today? And what does it actually take to be in the top 5% of your class? We're going to be talking about that at 1.35. Then, Dan, who do you think is the most famous Wisconsinite? The, the single most famous Wisconsinite well, wait, in I guess all it depends, history. depends on how you measure it. But yeah. it, it if you're, what does your gut instinct say? Uh, well, I was just seeing a whole bunch of clips uh, of him last week because I'm a big fan. So I would say maybe Chris Farley. Okay. Who do you think the most famous Wisconsinite is from your county? We'll say your home t- where you grew up. Well, I'm from Waukesha County, and this is a very, very easy answer for me because I went to the same high school as J.J. Watt. So, do you think it's J.J. Watt or do you think it's Les Paul? I would think I think probably J.J. Watt. Mm, probably. All right. Well, we're going to talk about that because the Journal Sentinel put data 
behind this question. It actually measured fame when it comes to Wisconsin celebrities. And then uh, at the end of the show, Dan's going to answer the real question of what he found out when he looked into why Wisconsin has not budged on legalizing even medical marijuana. And what he found might surprise you. It surprised me. It surprised me when I was looking when I into read it, your too, article. to be perfectly honest. yeah. But first, if there are three things I can guarantee that will happen during an election year in Wisconsin, it's a lot of money is going to be spent. Statewide races are going to be close, and there's going to be a lot of campaign ads. Buckle up. A lot. But what is new this year is how much artificial intelligence is going to be used in those campaign ads and how much you're going to have to be alerted versus deciphered on your own of what's real and what's not. So when we come back, what you need to know about what changes could happen uh, leading up to our elections in 2024 and specifically how much of the burden will be on you to decipher if a campaign ad is real or fake. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dan Schaefer. And have you been tricked yet by any AI pictures or ads? Tricked? Well, something that you thought was real yeah. until it came out that um, it was not real. You know, I I don't think I have been fully deceived on it yet. I think maybe I thought that something, you know, that we often see the, like these renderings of big projects that happening. I was like, oh, is this real or is this AI, I don't think I've been full on deceived by by some sort of the AI one that yet, got though. me this week that I only found out I fell for totally. There was a doctored picture of Jason Kelsey dressed in the same outfit as uh, the Hangover for Jason Zach Galifianakis's character with the the wolf outfit or whatever. Yeah, and the joke was that he dressed like that to the Super Bowl because it was in Vegas. Turns out that was a totally doctored photo. I and his personality, I was like, oh, of course he would wear that to the Super Bowl. But no, See, I that saw, was fake. I saw that too, and I, I thought it was funny. And I showed the picture to my wife, who is a who is a art director an artist, and graphic yeah. designer, and she's just like, that's a Photoshop. Look at the lines on his shirt. So she knew right away. Yeah. So, so this is a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a joke sometimes, maybe when it's Jason Kelsey in a funny right. meme. But it's going to be really serious when it comes to. Our, campaign ads and elections and luckily our lawmakers are trying to get ahead of it i don't know where the the bill is which is why we're going to be talking to jack kelly who is a state house reporter with wisconsin watch jack thanks for making time for us hey thank you so much for having me so as we were just talking there is bills in the state house right now as far as what we're going to do with ads that have been doctored in some way what is the latest on that discussion yeah, so uh, this is this is a really interesting thing. Um, you know, lawmakers started talking about this back over the summer when things were slow, kind of in the, the post-budget lull. Uh, and it's amazing to see how fast things can pick up. Um, so the bill that they're focused on here uh, effectively would require disclosure. Uh, so if you're watching a, a television ad from a political campaign or, you know, outside PAC, et cetera, uh, and they're using an AI-generated image, uh, they have to disclose that whenever that, that image or that video is, is on screen. Um, similar idea uh, if you're doing it in a radio ad. Uh, there has to be a disclosure at the, at the start and, and the finish of the ad um, saying that, you know, pieces of this or audio contained in this are, are generated by AI. So it's been interesting to see how it developed. Uh, the, bill, the bill passed the assembly 
uh, and I believe is waiting on action in the Senate. Um, and, uh, you know, things are coming to a close here in Madison, so if they're going to take action on it, they're, they're going to do it in the next few weeks. That's my question, because we always know in election years there are shorter se- legislative sessions, and they come to close the end of March, early April. And so in the next month, a lot has to get done. Is Does it seem like there's enough momentum to try to get this done ahead of the election? You know, it, it can always be hard to tell. Um, sometimes uh, things seem to come out of nowhere. Let's, you, you're talking about the legislative map. That's a good example of it. Uh, you know, passed several versions of it, and then all of a sudden the, the governor's maps were, were attached as an, a, a kind of a complete overhaul amendment uh, to, a, to a different bill. So uh, I, I think that there's potential. Uh, the Assembly is actually wrapping up its work today. That's already approved it. Um, and so I guess we'll, we'll kind of have to wait and see uh, in the Senate um, though there are different procedural rules, and the Senate would actually be able to bring this bill in particular up for a vote faster um, because of some of the action that the, the Assembly has taken on it. So I guess we'll see. It, it's really hard to tell. Uh, I, I have found that it, it is uh, always hard to take the temperature of exactly where something is going to go on uh, a proposal like this, which has actually garnered quite a bit of bi- bipartisan support. Jack, we know in Madison, in the state legislature, there is always a big partisan divide on a whole lot of different issues. It is the, being that AI is so new, is, is this an issue where there is a significant partisan divide, or does this not cut across traditional political lines? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that there is still some, some bipartisan room to work on this one. Uh, when you talk to lawmakers about this, they actually kind of make that exact joke, is that oh, AI hasn't become a partisan issue yet. Uh, so there's still wiggle room to get things done. And so this bill, I mean, from the jump uh, was, was bipartisan. Um, uh, Clinton Anderson, Democrat from uh, the Beloit area, uh, a handful of Republicans worked on it, and, and it had kind of the backing of, of the Assembly um, Election Committee, uh, Scott Krug with it as well. Um, so it is interesting to, to see where there are the opportunities for bipartisan agreement when when they seem to spend so much of their time at, at you know at odds with one another here. Well, I'm hoping that something happens because it feels like there's the, very much the wild west of what could happen with campaign ads if, if there's not even a mark that says this is or this isn't using real footage, you, real photos, real audio. But this is not the only bill in front of the Assembly and the Senate to change how elections happen in Wisconsin this year. Where are we as far as being able to start counting absentee ballots before the polls close? Has there been any movement on that? Yeah, so there are lawmakers, uh, interestingly enough, Republicans uh, in each chamber of the legislature are um, in a bit of a standoff on this, the Assembly Republicans are, are backing the proposal. Um, you know, Scott Krug, the, the chairman of the Assembly Elections Committee, has talked a lot about how he thinks that the issues that uh, the state saw in, in 2020 were, were perceptions that uh, you know people had concerns because they went to went to bed uh, on the on election night and the results looked one way, and then they woke up in the morning and the the results looked looked differently. Uh, and so Assembly Republicans are, are really on board with it. Um, it actually seems that it might be hung up in, in the Senate. And that is something that a lot of uh, folks are watching uh, as the, um, you know, the Assembly is wrapping up its business today and we're hearing that the Senate will be back uh, at least one more time. And so we'll be interested to see if that is one of those things that makes it onto the calendar for, for one of their last votes. Um, but, you know, either way, Republicans are very adamant that, that the city of Milwaukee, um, you know, needs, needs to find a way to count, count ballot, absentee ballots in particular faster 
so that you avoid getting that huge uh, wave of absentee ballot or ballots being tallied, um, you know, kind of in the middle of the night or into the or early hours of the next morning. Yeah, this is a really interesting issue. And when you talk about those political divisions, because this is one where I believe the governor has backed the change here. You know, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss has backed the change here. I think Ron Johnson in the past has backed the change, the Milwaukee Common Council. Has, yeah. And yet it's still stalled in this Senate committee uh, that is chaired by uh, State Senator Dan Canodal. What what has Canodal been saying? What has the Senate Republican leadership been saying about why this has stalled, even though it has so much bipartisan support? Yeah, so it's a bit of it's a bit of an interesting situation. Um, my understanding is that based on uh, be, because the assembly has uh, voted on it and the, they've had a they've had a public hearing on it. Uh, I mean, the Senate has also had a public hearing on it. The, co the committees in the Senate and the assembly have had hearings on it. Um, that it could just be brought up for a vote. It could be pulled uh, into the chamber and uh, voted on um, next time they're on the floor. And, and it's it's kind of interesting because uh, you know Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu uh, was a supporter of of doing this. Um, in the past. And, and so I, I think it'll be interesting to see if he can cobble together the votes uh, in his own caucus. Plus, you know, with the help of Democrats, we've seen uh, him do that a couple times this session to, to get bills passed, the funding for the Brewer Stadium being one of the big ones, um, to see if it, you know, to see if, if they could do this uh, next time they're on the floor and get and get this passed and sent to the governor. Because uh, I think a lot of folks, I mean, you talk to clerks, especially in large communities, they're in favor of this to help kind of relieve that, that crazy workload on, on election day, especially for, you know, something like a presidential election. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll see. It is one of the more interesting things to be watching as the legislative session wraps up here. Lots of things to watch as this session does wrap up. We will have to have you back, Jack, to talk about what the final status was for different new laws that could affect our elections. Obviously, there's going to be lawsuits that will affect our elections, as there always is. But Jack Kelly is a state house reporter with Wisconsin Watch. Thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Citing Unlimited WTMJ News Time 123. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. And you had an interesting point about Milwaukee counting votes and the RNC. Yeah, I think. I, I think, you know, that we were talking about the ballot processing issue and, you know, so many conspiracy theorists have pointed to, oh, Milwaukee drops these ballots in the middle of the night. Well, we have an opportunity to address that right mm -hmm. now. And like we were talking about, there is a lot of bipartisan support. It passed in the Republican controlled assembly. I think those in Milwaukee who have advocated so strongly to bring the RNC here, I think they should make a point to say we should get this done. We should get this done before December so that there's not, you know, conspiracy theorists on stage at the RNC in Milwaukee making up claims about ballot dumps in the middle of the night. We have an opportunity to, to fend off some of those accusations about the city. I think the people in Milwaukee who are who are backing the RNC uh, should should urge Dan Knodel and the Republican State Senate to take action on this. It'll be interesting to see if they actually make this a priority as far as what gets done in the next month or so. There seemed like there's still a lot of open questions, not just on election legislation, but a lot of different bills that I've been reading about where it's what committee it's in, where where it's passed, where it hasn't passed, whether or not the governor will sign it. I know what we're going to talk about in the next segment is a bill that did actually get passed. 
And so having to do with admissions and the UW system. But before we get to that, did anything surprise you from Tuesday's primary election? Surprising? No, I didn't. I wasn't really surprised by too many of the results from the Tuesday primary. I think, you know, the top of the ticket being what it is, David Crowley and and uh, Kevlar Johnson uh, moving forward with uh, big uh, Kevlar Johnson had a huge primary victory. I think a lot of the stuff was kind of set in stone. I was looking at there's a seventh district uh, in the Common Council. I think there was kind of a four way race and it was really, really close mm-hmm. uh, all the way up until the end. But uh, I think, you know, I think a lot of what happened in the spring primary more or less happened as expected that's what i thought as well i didn't see as much across the whole state as i've still still been trying to figure out which races now will become super competitive i know i think the biggest news out of tuesday was the failed referendums and what that means for the additional referendums that are on the april 2nd ballot Mm -hmm. yeah i think you know it's a rare occasion in wisconsin that we have a pretty chill election (laughs) i know I think it may be healthy for us that, that we have such a, you know, low stress type of uh, election for the spring election this year, considering that all that's going to be happening in the fall. Well, that's how I felt from once we got past the states, the state Supreme Court election last April to have the rest of 2023 without any campaign ads, without right. the next big thing. This is the most important election of your life and all of the cl- <laughs> right. the, the cliches that go around that we will hear plenty of this year. Well, coming up, is your child or grandchild in the top 5% or 10% of their class? Well, if so, there's some good news about college admissions for them coming out of the Capitol this week. So that's next on Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. And some good news this week for Wisconsin high school students who are in the top 5% of their class or top 10%. But now UW-Madison will have automatic admissions for students in the top 5% of their class. And the rest of the UW campuses will be have automatic admission for the top 10% of graduating classes. So here to tell us more about what that means is Kelly Meyerhofer, who is an education reporter with the Journal Sentinel. Kelly. Hi. So, hi. Thanks for making time for us. How much it seems having such a strict number on it seems like a big change. But how much does this actually differ from what the UW campuses are already doing. Sure. Yeah, it sounded like a big, big deal. Um, But it's I don't think it's going to be that big of a deal, especially for UW-Madison. The chancellor there has said they already admit about 95 percent of the students that are in the top five percent of their high school class. Um, That that small five percent, it may send a message to them that they do have a spot there if they're doubting themselves. So it may encourage some students to go there. But I think for the large part, students who want to go there are already getting admitted. And so why do it? Why was this a priority for because this is a Republican authored bill? Yeah, Republicans have, you know, talked about hearing stories from parents, um, from high school students saying, you know, I have a 4.0, I have a 30 on my ACT, and I still got rejected from UW-Madison, and they don't like hearing those stories. And when they've gone to UW-Madison and asked about their admissions process, they feel that the university isn't being very forthcoming about their formula. They say there is no formula. Um, It's just a case-by-case basis on who can get in. So this law, in Republicans' eyes, will give some more clarity um, in the process. 
So what I'm curious about, too, with this is that, you know, not only is this a bill impacting UW-Madison, it's a bill impacting all UW campuses. So the 10% there, could you break down exactly what that means uh, and, and how that might, you know, impact? Because, you know, as somebody who is a UW system graduate but went to UW Oshkosh and not Madison, sometimes I think there's a little bit too much of an emphasis on Madison in these debates. So what's going on uh, with the other campuses around the state? Yeah, the new law says if you're in the top 10% of your high school class, you can get into any UW campus other than Madison. Um, I think for the most part, all of those campus are, campuses are already accepting um, students who are in the top 10%. They're open access institutions, and they largely accept 80 90% of applicants anyway. So there's really going to be no change for those campuses. So this was part of a broader deal Republicans had with the UW system. Can you talk about what that whole deal encompassed? Yeah, that was a deal passed in December. Uh, Republicans uh, for months have, you know, uh, raised questions about campus diversity programming and uh, were not giving the UW system money in the budget because of that. Uh, so this was a deal that UW system struck with Republicans. Uh, they get uh, pay raises for all of their employees. They get about $800 million for a bunch of building projects, um, most of which are on Madison's campus. And uh, in exchange, they have to uh, agree to some things, including freezing the number of diversity positions on their campuses um, and uh, have this law passed and follow this law. We're talking to Kelly Meyerhofer, who is an education reporter with the Journal Sentinel. Is there how much is this specific 5 percent, 10 percent tied to not tied to how much? Do people think it'll affect what diversity efforts exist? Is it is that tied at all or is it some, a completely separate issue? I think I mean, Republicans intent, you know, isn't hasn't really been tied to diversity for, you know, diversifying the classes with this law. But there has been academic research on other states that have these top 10 percent policies. And the research out of California uh, has shown it has encouraged uh, like low income students who maybe wouldn't consider their state flagship uh, that encouraged them to go there because oh, of this policy. That's really good news. I, so California has it. Does Texas have it as well? Texas has a policy, too. And so, so red states and blue states agreeing states and- that uh, people should stay <laughs> in their states to go to college, I guess. And there's I, something we can agree on after all, right? And I guess that's the other question. Is that do, is this the intent thinking that this will keep more kids in Wisconsin? That's sort of been the messaging from UW when they agreed as part of the broader DEI deal was, you know, we think this bill will help keep more students in Wisconsin. And they like that goal. Absolutely. Anything else people should know about this bill or admissions in general for the UW system? Well, it's been a very hectic uh, admissions uh, cycle this year. We had the Supreme U.S. Supreme Court ruling over the summer um, restricting race-conscious admissions. We have a new FAFSA form, which has been pr- pretty much a nightmare for both students and financial aid offices. Um, and now we have this law. So there's a lot going on. With what, tell me more about the FAFSA. Uh, so the Congress mandated a totally new form. FAFSA is this form that students have to file to get financial aid money. Um, they've updated the form. It's a much simpler form, fewer questions, easier process. Uh, but they haven't gotten resources from Congress to update it. So so they're super behind. There's been glitches. Uh, undocumented students of undocumented parents like can't access the form at all. Schools aren't going to be getting financial aid information until like the middle of March. Usually they start getting it in October and students are mostly 
committing by like May 1st. So there's just a super compressed timeline for students to make decisions and for schools to process this information. Wow. Kelly Meyerhofer is an education reporter with the Journal Sentinel. Thank you for taking time with us today. Thank you. Coming up next, who do you think is the most famous or infamous person from Wisconsin? Give us your guesses on the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620. We'll get to that when we come back. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. And who do you think, if you had to guess, is the most famous or infamous Wisconsinite? WTMJ talk and text line is 855-616-1620. Shoot us over who you think is the most famous. And do you have any personal connections to anyone who's famous, Dan? I guess a, a small personal connection. Okay. To, to, so I... I went to Pewaukee High School, and so the most famous graduate of Pewaukee High School is, of course, not me, but J.J. Watt uh, and the Watt family. Not you. Not me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So I was a senior when J.J. Watt was a freshman uh, at my high school. So I do have that connection there. Um, I didn't really know him at all. He was like the good athlete who was a freshman. There was like always like massive the one good even as a freshman. See, the thing was, I think. I don't think anybody really saw this coming. With, oh. uh, you know, it was like he was he went to play uh, college football in, in Michigan, I think. And it was like he was always, you know, on track to be, do something in basketball or football or whatever. But I think people were a little surprised when he became J.J. Watt, you know, and became like one of the greatest defensive players in NFL history. So I think that was a little bit of a surprise for people. I also knew uh, Joe Thomas who was also an NFL player. Okay. Uh, I knew yeah, I went to the same church as him. Uh, and so, and, and with Joe Thomas, there was no doubt he was going to be a professional athlete and whatever he wanted to be a professional athlete. And he was terrific at everything with JJ. It was a little bit more of a surprise. Again, I was a couple years older, so I didn't really know him that well. Um, but yeah, that is the, uh, the famous connection from, from my, uh, neck of the woods in Wisconsin. All right. Um, our fam- family's famous connection was my dad was a basketball coach at Edgewood high school in Madison and he cut Chris Farley from the basketball team Cut during him from the team big surprise chris farley not a good basketball player <laughs> not good at running uh then then my dad said he he's went got out for, some physicality though went, maybe yeah. grab a couple rebounds be like a charles barkley type guy exactly right? yeah. and so he that story was always really funny but i think that's one of the few and so we asked this because the journal sentinel used data because how do you measure fame how do you measure who is the most famous and so they went to wikipedia so there's more than 10,000 individuals who have some kind of association with Wisconsin. And in order to measure their popularity, four different journalists from the Journal Sentinel did ha- use Wikipedia page view data over the last five years to approximate public interest for each individual. And so I think that timeline potentially skews the data creates a little bit of recency bias perhaps. because yeah. i want to build the tension as far as who is who be, who is by far and away the most famous slash infamous on this list but it has to do with a certain uh there was a little pop culture around this person recently so one more chance to text in your guest wtmj talk and text line 855-616-1620 if you have a guess for who the most popular 
or at least with the most page views on Wikipedia, Wisconsin Night is. We would love to hear from you. Or if you have a personal connection to someone who is from Wisconsin and is also a celebrity, WTMJ Talk and Text Line 855-616-1620. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer and talking about the most famous or infamous person from Wisconsin, according to page views on Wikipedia. Journal Sentinel looked into this, but not only did they look into overall the most famous, they went into each county. So if you would like to see who is the most famous person from your county or any of the 72 counties in Wisconsin, text FAMOUS to the WTMJ talk and text line 855-616-1620 and we'll shoot you over the article so you can look at the interactive map and click on it and see who the most famous person is from your part of the state, which I thought was, that's a lot of work. That is a lot of work. All 72 counties got somebody famous from them, right? So, Someone. Like, like I was saying before, J.J. Watt was from Waukesha County, most famous person from Waukesha County uh, where I grew up. I mentioned uh, before the break that he went to school in Michigan. He, of course, did go to UW-Madison, but he went to Central Michigan first, left, and then walked on to UW-Madison. Just wanted to correct that before we get to clarification. The, yes, clarification there before we get to the uh, the rest of the list. So by far and away, a couple people on the text line did guess this correctly, but the answer is Dahmer is by far and away the person with the most page views on Wikipedia. It's not even close. And then... Obviously, I think it's because of the Netflix film. I was going to say, I wonder if that has anything to do with a recent certain Netflix program that may have may have influenced uh, these results to to some degree. But from 2019 to 2023, it was 1.3 million page views for Jeffrey Dahmer on Wikipedia. (sighs) And as far as famous actors go, we have a couple. William Defoe, uh, Willem Defoe, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Farley. Willem Dafoe from Appleton is the the highest ranked celebrity actor, we'll say, as uh, coming in at number three. UW-Milwaukee grad, Willem Dafoe. And he just got his, uh, I think he and Mark Ruffalo both recently got their star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That is true. And Mark Ruffalo is also on the list. He's just above Chris Farley. And I said to you at the break, it's inspiring to me that he has had such a lasting impression because he's been gone for a while now and that people still love him and and we claim him so hard in wisconsin people were just celebrating his birthday on social media not too long ago you know saying that he would have he would have turned 60 this month i believe and yeah he's i mean i'm a big snl snl fan and i think he is maybe my favorite all-time cast member on SNL, Chris Farley. I got to, you know, got to go with a little Wisconsin bias there, right? A little Wisconsin bias, but he was also incredibly, incredibly talented. And so this is a really fun article. I just, whenever you can use data to use things like, to prove things like this as far as most famous, but also, do we like the fact that when you travel and people say Wisconsin, or more specifically, they say Milwaukee, and people say, oh, Jeffrey Dahmer, it's not the best thing to have that be the correlation. Yeah, it's not great. It's not great. We're not on the map for the uh, for maybe the best reason in that sense. But, you know, there are uh, so many uh, positive examples of, of famous people uh, from Milwaukee, too. You know, Gene Wilder was on the list. Gene Wilder's from from Milwaukee as well. 
Maybe we can just claim him as our, our number one most famous person. Stacey <laughs> Abrams was uh, born here. That's, that's one that right. I always forget. Yeah. It, it's funny the ones that just because they were born here, they then have an association, even though they didn't necessarily grow up here. Like Colin Kaepernick, born in Wisconsin. But I, right, I always yeah. forget that that's a connection because I don't think that's very much that's very part of his story. It's, it's a small part of his story, but it doesn't seem like the, the main. He's from, you know, born in Milwaukee, grew up in, I think, a few years in Fond du Lac as well, okay. too. Yeah. All right, coming up next hour, what do these new legislative maps mean for you? Then at 2.30, could cannabis solve PFAS contamination? Two scientists at UW-Stevens Point are trying to find out. And then on the similar uh, weed track, Dan will let us know (laughs) what he found out when he looked into the real reason Wisconsin has not made any headway on legalizing even medical marijuana. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. 65,498 square miles. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. This is Spanning the State. Here's your host, Kristen Bry. Good afternoon. I am here with Dan Schaefer, founder of the Recombobulation Area. And Dan, how long have you been writing about redistricting and maps and fair maps? Well, I started the Recombobulation Area a little over four years ago, and I have written about redistricting every year since uh, I have written in the last two months since the state Supreme Court ruled, uh, striking down our, our old maps. I've written column after column. I've written feature stories. I wrote a preview series that won a Milwaukee Press Club Award, by the way, uh, previewing all 116 seats uh, on the ballot in the Wisconsin State Legislature, gerrymandering uh, and redistricting, obviously a big part of that. So, yeah, I guess you could say I've written a little bit over you've, the years you've about, written a lot. about I've, redistricting. I've done a lot of videos in the attempt to break it down for people. I've used Packer analogies. I made... George Stanley, former publisher of the Journal Sentinel, eat tacos in one of the videos. I used bottle caps. And I was reflecting on it this week because besides congressional maps, which obviously are still happening, there may be a time soon where we don't write about it or make videos about it. But it's also still coming back to, at least for me, when I think about redistricting, was always that. It was wonky. It was, Mm -hmm. for the layperson just trying to get their news, not sexy. And so... For people who are politicos, people like journalists, obviously elected officials, this is a big. This has been a big news week with Governor Evers signing new maps on Monday. But what does that actually mean for people that have not followed this story with bated breath for the last four years, if not twelve years? Yeah, I mean, it is one of those topics that is deep in the political weeds, and you have to do things like use tacos and bottle caps and. <laughs> Weird preview series to to try and figure out, you know, how to make this relatable to people. But I think, you know, the way I see it, too, is that, you know, government is so often built from the ground up and not the top down and not it's not necessarily, you know, the president or the senator that will have the most impact uh, on your day to day life. It is your state assembly representative. It is your state senator. Uh, So I think, you know, and in Wisconsin, the way our government is structured, the state legislature in particular has so much power. You know, we, we talk about so many issues that the state legislature rules on uh, here in Milwaukee that, you know, Milwaukee can't always make a decision. We were talking about the ballot count earlier. Milwaukee can't make a decision on how to, you know, change the way it counts ballots without permission from the state. So I think 
the state legislature is so important. And, you know, going from a map that was so heavily favored towards Republicans for so long to a map that is much closer to the 50-50 split that we see in statewide elections, I think is going to be a, bring about a huge, huge change uh, across the state. And we're going to see, you know, parts of the state have competitive elections that haven't had competitive elections in a generation. And I think that's a really, you know, I think that's a really exciting prospect for the state. I think, you know, some people might say, oh, this is a win for Democrats. You know, this is a win for one political party or another. I think this is an overall a win for Wisconsin and a win for democracy and win for better representation, because I think overall this is going to pull people away from the polarization that we have seen for so long in the state and start to, you know, come together and get things done and speak to issues that have majority support in public opinion polls. And so that's the part that I'm really excited to talk about next when we come back. What does this actually mean? What parts of Wisconsin are going to see the biggest change? What incumbents may have to run up against run against each other? So that's coming up next on Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. What do these new maps actually mean for you, the voter? Here to talk about it is John Johnson, research fellow at the Lubar Center for Public Policy. John, you do you think anyone spent more time looking at these maps than you? In well, this state, well, some people have certainly been getting paid more to spend time looking at them. So <laughs> That's actually I hope a great have. question. I hope Were they you? Have. Did you see when that article came out that said how much the experts that the state supreme court had hired? We're making around $450 an hour. Were you like, what am I doing? I, yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, the thought crossed my mind, but uh, it's been it's been a fun couple months. But. So big news: we got new maps. There's, I think, there's still some ifs and hopefullys. It sounds like as far as there not being an additional legal ramification but let's talk in terms that this is done this is happening these are the maps that will be in place for our legislative elections this fall what does that mean for most people where are the biggest changes going to happen from what you can tell with the new maps versus the maps that we had in place from 2022 there are a lot of changes in terms of the boundaries of the districts uh, you know, if you're a listener who does not live in the city of Milwaukee within city limits, there's pretty good odds that you'll have some different names on your ballot, that you might live in a different district number than the last election cycle. So make sure you take a look in August during the primary to see if you have something interesting to vote for. Often you may not have in the past, but that that'll be different for a lot of voters now. That's different than saying where the competitive seats are. You know, yeah. though, that's a smaller number. So it's a, so when we say competitive seats, there's correct me if I'm wrong. There's 45 and that lean Democratic that the assumption is a Democrat will win in those seats for the assembly. 46 that are staying leaning Republican and eight that are competitive. You know, you can you can come up with slightly different numbers depending okay. on the baseline that you use. If you imagine a really good year for Republicans, then you know more seats are on the table. A really good year for Democrats, but that's basically right. Yeah. What? Yep. Sorry. One of the things that I wrote was that. Last in, in the 2022 midterm elections in the 99 seat state assembly, there were only eight races decided by a less than 10 percent margin. Uh, you know, on the, the new map that projects to increase significantly, uh, you know, perhaps even into the you know more than 20 races uh, that could be competitive. So I think that is going to be a really interesting 
piece of this, more competition, you know, less uh, obvious polarization, you know, they dug in red and blue camps in Wisconsin. You're going to have to be competing for for some voters that maybe uh, you hadn't been paying attention to in a long time. Where are those eight districts? So there are two districts that I think are going to be pretty competitive in the Milwaukee area. 21st district, which is down in kind of Oak Creek and some of the surrounding areas there. Uh, It got drawn to lean more to the Democrats than it did in the past. It's currently represented by Republican Jesse Rodriguez. Then there's a district that's down in Greenfield and Greendale. This was, I believe, the 84th under the old map, but I think it's the 61st is is that number now, but it's much the same area. Be fascinated to see what happens in that district. There's two real competitive districts in the Green Bay area, the 88th and the 89th. Those could go either way. I think they'll be pretty fiercely contested by both parties. You could say the same thing for the Wausau district, which becomes more competitive. And this uh, new district out by Hudson, close to the Twin Cities, that'll be pretty competitive between both parties. Go ahead, Dan. Yeah, I think it offers an interesting look. You know, those those places that you listed offers an interesting look at how Wisconsin's political geography is, because I think a lot of people will say, oh, well, you know, all of the Democratic voters are clustered into Madison and Milwaukee. Well, such is not really the case. If you really look across the state, you look at, you know, Eau Claire, La Crosse, Oshkosh, Green Bay, Wausau, uh, these different places that you mentioned where there are, you know, closer to 50-50 splits uh, politically. So I think that is going to be an interesting uh, opportunity for people to compete for votes in those districts. Stevens Point, Sheboygan, Duluth, yeah. yeah, the 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 list goes on. A lot of those mid-sized cities. It's mm-hmm. you know, there's the urban rural divide, but then there's a lot of these mid-sized cities that are caught in the middle. And I know the first round when there was a, initial changes to Governor Evers' maps, which were what he ended up signing, but the first time when he vetoed them, it was because he, these these aren't my maps, and because there were certain changes that they were trying to protect incumbents. How many incumbents have now been drawn into the same? district or do you if you don't know the number off the top of your head i know as of yesterday because dan uh state senator dan canodal and dewey strobel have been now in the are in the same district so i think dan canodal said that he's not going to run for re-election so i didn't know if you had an idea of how uh, many other races that's going to affect i believe the numbers are around 19 perhaps oh wow um yeah there's there's quite a few I might have that number wrong. So the, the backstory here you might find kind of interesting. All the parties to the case created an updated file with the current addresses for all the legislators as of the beginning of this year, and then they redacted it from the public record. Uh, so you'll see uh, the lawyers from those cases, you know, th- throwing numbers around, which I assume they're correct about the number of incumbents that are paired, but I'm not able to uh, to do that calculation myself because they haven't shared that file. So the idealist in me wants to think... We say these these districts that lean left, lean right, lean Republican, lean Democrat, but you want to believe that it comes down to the candidate. It comes down to running a good campaign. It runs down runs on incumbents running on their record, and that's how this is supposed to work. As far as the best person who makes the best case gets the most votes, is that possible in these maps, or is it really kind of hardwired when we say these 45 lean this way, these 46 lean this way, and the same thing in the Senate? You know, this is that that comes down to something that isn't just about redistricting. It's, uh, it speaks to our politics more broadly now and in the U.S. Congress as well. Uh, so many people just know which party they're going to vote for ahead of time that a lot of places, let alone districts, a lot of just communities, it's a foregone conclusion who... Uh, those people are going to vote for. 
Um, and so, yeah, the, this map has not as many competitive seats as you might hope in large part, just because there aren't that many parts of Wisconsin that are competitive between the two parties. But the competitive seats that do exist in this map will determine which party wins a majority of the assembly in November. And that's different than the past decade. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, with this new map, uh, Will the assembly be in play for for both part for either party to win a majority? Yes, yeah. Uh, maybe the easiest way to explain it is Tony Evers won a majority of the seats in this map, and Ron Johnson won a majority of the seats in this map during those two candidates' respective 2022 reelection bids. So there will be a number of those. You know, I, I think you mentioned that's that Senate district too that has was that Senate district eight. Uh, you know, that was a district that was won by Tony Evers and won by Ron Johnson. We have, you know, this is this is the nature of Wisconsin, the nature of a purple state. And that has I think what's what's important to note about that is that hasn't been the case for more than a decade. You know, Republicans have held 60 or more seats in the state assembly every year since they installed this gerrymander uh, in 2011. And so this is going to bring about a brand new landscape. And, and I think part of the calculation that, you know, at least what Republicans were saying quoted in the media over the last week was saying that they wanted to have some level of certainty uh, going into the year and, you know, some level of understanding of where people are going to be, how they can re recruit candidates for districts that they may, be, may not have been before. And so, look, I think anybody has the opportunity to run for office. You know, if you're out there and thinking about it, now's the time, right? That's right. And in fact, there was a filing just yesterday by the lawyers for the legislative Republicans of the Supreme Court requesting that they uh, settle this issue of which districts might be used for special elections and things like that, because uh, it seems like the attitude that I've seen from members of both parties is we want to move forward and contest this election in November, because from what I've seen, both sides are expressing a lot of confidence that they think they can win. Last question. I know you're not a lawyer. How confident are we that these will be the maps and that there's not additional lawsuits pending? They're the law of the land right now, which okay. means that they're in a position of strength going forward. And the fact that they were passed by the legislature and signed by the governor means that they're much more robust to any future changes in the composition of the state judiciary. Got it. All right. He is John Johnson, research fellow for the Lubar Center for Public Policy. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. My pleasure. All right. News time. 223, this is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry. He is Dan Schaefer. We were just talking to John Johnson about what these new maps mean. And I think the biggest takeaway is that you need to be able to check what your new district is on myvote.wi.gov. That is the magic in an election year, the magic website that has all of the information when it comes to what's on your ballot, where you're supposed to vote, but definitely checking that before you go vote in the primary, which will be August. I don't remember. 8th. The, 8, August I think 8th. it's August yeah. 8th. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, as we were saying, with more competitive races, if it brings out more people who before never thought about running because there was a predetermined decision that 
I could never win. Why would I put money and time into this? But now, yeah, I think it's hard for people if it's, you know, if it's a district that is supposed to be, you know, like a 60, 40 breakdown or whatever, it's hard to recruit people to, to be in those districts. It's hard to make the decision to spend a significant amount of your time to run in a campaign like that. You know, now with, uh, with more competitive races, I think, uh, I think that will be, you know, opening the door for that. And look, all, all 99 seats are on the assembly. We get to start fresh every two years. I think that's what's, what's great about the system that we have here. And so we have a real opportunity for a reset in Wisconsin politics. And I think things have been pretty toxic for a pretty long time in the state of Wisconsin, uh, in our politics in the state legislature. And I think, you know, I, my hope is that this gets us away from some of those more toxic politics and gets us to, to come together and find more common ground. We had an interesting text on the talking text line. Why do districts have to be 50-50 because the state is 50-50? Why shouldn't it be community by community? I'm in Appleton, and the representation here is much different than Madison. That's the way it should be and not manipulate the districts to reflect 50-50 by breaking up communities. What am I missing? Yeah, so I think the that is part of what has changed, ultimately. A lot of the previous maps did break up a lot of communities. Um, you know, one example of what happened is that Sheboygan was basically there was a line kind of drawn right down in the middle of Sheboygan where there was made it so that, you know, it was two Republican seats instead of one Democratic seat and one Republican seat in that area. So I think the, one of the goals here uh, in this map is to limit those number of community splits. And, I, and, and to the quest, to the point on being a 50 50, you know, I think it's just about representing the state as a whole and the state as a whole is a 50-50 state. Appleton might not have the same, you know, exact partisan breakdown as Madison or, you know, Waukesha or any other, you know, number of counties and, and, and cities across the state. But it's about having a map that better reflects those communities. Uh, and I think that is what we are going to now have uh, with this new map. And I think that's what John John Johnson was getting to the point of, is that there is a lot of our communities that are baked into their political leanings, that even with new maps, that when we say, shouldn't it just come down to who the candidate is? It doesn't always do that just because of the way that we've self-selected into where we live and what the political leanings of that community is. All right. All right. Well, coming up after the news, could cannabis be one of the solutions to PFAS contamination? We are going to talk to two scientists from UW-Stevens Point about some research that they are doing on both cannabis hemp plants, alfalfa plants, on being able to soak up the contamination and maybe be a solution, be an eco-friendly solution, a cheaper solution. So we'll be doing that right after the news. Citing Unlimited, WTMJ News Time, 2.30. ABC News and local headlines are next. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. You know what movie I watched over the weekend? What's that? Aaron Brockovich. Aaron, what prompted you to watch Aaron Brockovich? My sister-in-law was in town and she just put it on and she was babysitting Frankie as I was getting some work done. And then I didn't get any work done because I sat down and actually watched the movie with her. You got sucked in. And it's from 2000. So it's been a while since that movie came out. But it was interesting to watch it with a new lens of poisoned water or contaminated water, especially when we now talk a lot about throughout Wisconsin, there are many, many different places that are dealing with 
PFAS or PFAS contamination. And this these forever chemicals are linked to not a, a lot of things that are also in that movie. Right. We talk about there's kidney and testicular cancers, lower birth weights, harm to immune system and reproductive systems. There's altered hormone regulation and thyroid. There's all these bad things that can happen to from PFAS contamination. And it's in everything. Anything that is waterproof or water resistant has these forever chemicals in it. And then it gets in our water. It's a huge problem, and it's a huge problem, particularly in Wisconsin. And I think that is, you know, something that elected officials are trying to figure out. But I think also we have need some research to researchers to get a better understanding of of what exactly the problem is and what we can do about it too. And so there's lots of research being done as far as how do you get these forever chemicals out of our water, out of our soil, and now there is new research being done at UW Stevens Point that plants specifically. A cannabis hemp plant and alfalfa could be a solution. So joining us now are Shannon Reha and Brian Beringer, two of the scientists leading this study at UW-Stevens Point. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So where? how did the hypothesis for this start? Why plants? Why these plants? Um, it's a great question, and, and really it, we just were interested in um, looking at phytoremediation in general using cannabis um, because this was a, a plant that one of our undergraduates was interested in studying. Um, we started looking at heavy metals because those are pretty common contaminants in cannabis-based products. And then once we started learning more and more about PFAS, we're like, okay, well, these are great phytoremediators for heavy metals. Could they be used for remediation of PFAS? Interesting. And so has the research already started? Because I know you guys just got a $175,000 grant, grant to start this. Has Where where are you in the study so far? Um, yeah, so right now we are kind of in the developmental and the methods um, part of the research, coming up with our design for a greenhouse study, which we're hoping to start in the next um, couple weeks. Um, obviously, living in Wisconsin, it's pretty hard to plant this time of year outside. So we want to get a pilot um, study going in the greenhouse in the next couple of weeks where we are using contaminated soils um, and, and looking at a couple different varieties of cannabis, hemp, and alfalfa. So through this process, if you find that this is a successful way to, to clean the groundwater, to clean uh, these chemicals, how, how could it be expanded? Well, uh, it's, uh, this is Brian Berenger. Um, it's, uh, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think, you know, one of, and something that we're definitely struggling with a bit. Um, one of the things that we're thinking about is how do you deal with the plant material uh, that is contaminated with PFAS? And there are a number of ways of, of, uh, of doing that. But, um, but in, in terms of expansion, we're hoping that, that um, you know, these small scale studies will, will, uh, will lead to larger scale applications in, in, the, in the field. And so what are some of the things that you could do with a contaminated plant? Because I think there's a there's a low hanging fruit joke there about, you know, burning it and um, the fumes that could come off of it. But I'm guessing that there's an actual more practical thing that you can do with the remnants of these plants. Seems like maybe some of the UW Stevens Point students might be interested in, the, in that aspect of it, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, that that wouldn't surprise me, but um, yeah, I mean, I'll just there there are a number of of of, uh, of ways that people deal in general with 
with bio waste, and that's exactly what you would end up with in this case. Um, and in fact, what is generally called heat treatment uh, is is one of those one of those ways. There are a number of ways of of burning, if you will, the material, uh, which um, has both pros and cons. Um, there are a variety of other ways potentially to deal with uh, with the, the bio waste. Um, one of them involves microbes and using microbes, whether bacteria or, or fungi, for example, to break down uh, the material. Um, uh, but I think I, I think the most common way is to is to essentially burn it. And again, um, there are a number of, of details there, but but incineration is is one of the most common techniques. So if this works, if this proves to be an effective, efficient, eco-friendly way to you to decontaminate soil that has forever chemicals in it, why is this an optimal way versus other things that already exist? So. Currently, to remediate soil, you have excavation of significant amounts of, of land that then have to be moved off site somewhere. And so by using plants, essentially what we're doing is we're concentrating that into a lot smaller mass. Yes, it still has to be moved off site, but now you have significantly less mass moving off site, and then you're not disrupting the soil as much. Um, so that, that's kind of where the benefit is. Um, there's also just some differences in what we've been finding in the literature between how plants remediate PFAS versus, um, say, other sorbents that are being investigated. Generally, some of the more industrial-based sorbents, I think, prefer the longer-chain PFAS, whereas plants tend to uptake the smaller or shorter-chain PFAS compounds. So by kind of using both methods, maybe it's a win-win um, so that you in, can encapsulate or capture a variety of PFAS. What's so interesting, it's way above my science brain as far as what you guys are trying to develop and create, but it's obviously very important. Shannon Reha and Brian Beringer are both with UW-Stevens Point leading a team researching how to use cannabis, hemp, and alfalfa to potentially decontaminate forever chemicals in soil. Thanks so much for your time today, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up. Speaking of cannabis, Dan, you recently tried to get to the bottom of why Wisconsin has been hotboxed in around uh, <laughs> all of our surrounding states have some form of either legal or recreational marijuana now legalized. Wisconsin has not budged on that yet. And you got a surprising answer of one part group in particular that is actually not behind why we're still here. Got some surprising results while investigating this. We can talk about it. Yeah. This is Spanning the State on WTMJ. Welcome back to Spanning the State. I am Kristen Bry here with Dan Schaefer. And Dan, a month ago, was this the end of January, early January, you wrote an article for Milwaukee Record asking what's keeping Wisconsin from legalizing marijuana and is it really the tavern league 
What yeah. did you find? Yeah. So I, you know, there's the, been a number of proposals in recent recent months about, you know, perhaps legalizing medical marijuana. We're seeing all of our neighbors in the Midwest mm-hmm. either legalize recreational, recreational or medical marijuana. You know, Ohio was the latest to legalize recreational marijuana. Minnesota took that step over the past couple of years. Illinois, Michigan. Uh, and there was a story out of Michigan that showed how many exactly where their customers were coming from uh, in the UP. Well, surprise, surprise, they were all from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. So it just seems like, OK, there's this we're in this landscape now where we're very much an outlier in the Midwest, not having any recreational or medical marijuana legalization. You know, this is also an issue that has polls with huge majority support, I think. In the most recent Marquette University Law School poll on medical marijuana legalization, I think it's like 85% support uh, for for recreational. It's like 65% support. Even Republicans are just about 50-50 on it. So, like, what is it that's that's stopping Wisconsin? And I think whenever you bring this up, you know, on social media or wherever it might be, people often will make reference to the Tavern League of Wisconsin, saying that oh, as long as the Tavern League's here, you're not going to get uh, not going to get legal marijuana, legal cannabis, whatever it might be. And I just, it it seemed like one of those things that people said so often that I wanted to actually hear it from somebody from the Tavern League to see where they stood. So I reached out to some folks from the Tavern League uh, inquiring about, you know, what their stance was on this. I, I was surprised to hear back from somebody and they said, we don't really have an opinion on it. We don't really have uh, a take either way. You know, the, it, the way that, uh, you know, kind of disclosures work in Wisconsin with lobbying groups, they have to register in support or opposed if they are, um, you know, taking a stance on a certain bill. Tavern League had not done that on any of the for, proposed against or for for or against uh, on any of it that, you know, I had a number of people saying or, uh, the, the representative Scott Stenger said, this is an issue. We have no dog in the fight whatsoever it's not an issue for us and he said he has no earthly idea why anyone why they've gotten attached to the this tavern league uh so i think you know I, I saw some other people who were uh interested in this issue also get the same response back after i wrote my story uh from the tavern league saying that they are not the reason um so i think i think it is again a reason uh, a type of issue that just cuts down traditional political lines. We have Republicans who are against legalization and Democrats who are for it in Wisconsin. Well, you did them a service, I think, by clearing that up because <laughs> I had heard the same thing, whether it's on Reddit or Twitter or whatever masses decide to put their comments into into the public sphere that always attributed always, it to the Tavern League. And so when Tavern you League, yeah. found that out, I was like, this is really information, good, good information that we should spread and I, th- I think there are a number of number of uh, reasons people might li- might not like the tavern league they might disagree with their policies on on this or that or the things that they are you know registering in mm-hmm. favor or uh, or opposed to but I just don't think this is one of them uh, I don't think they are you know the primary obstacle here you know we had the medical marijuana bill that robin voss proposed that had state-run uh dispensaries for the medical marijuana uh that senate republicans said we should be working with private industry instead and the bill has kind of died off now it doesn't look like it's going to pass uh this session so it again it seems just like an example of of political gridlock of political polarization and not the nefarious motives uh, of the certain Wisconsin lobbying groups yeah